Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchan, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Before we get started, a heads up that this episode contains some explicit language and also discusses pregnancy loss. We're forced to be put into places of being like the abortion gatekeepers or the the food pantry gatekeeper or the diaper gatekeeper because... There's this scarcity of resources that's a fake scarcity. There is no scarcity. There's just people hoarding shit. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sayer. It was a year ago this month that in the United States, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, totally remaking the policy landscape for abortion. Last summer, I talked to Lori Bertram Roberts, who runs the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund in Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, a city whose abortion clinic was at the center of the Dobbs case that overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, and where that clinic is now closed— Lori is a single parent of seven kids and disabled, and they've lived in Mississippi most of their adult life, working on abortion access. But a year ago, Lori emphasized how they see their work is much broader than that. I became a reproductive justice activist because my life has been full of reproductive injustice. Not just my reproductive health life, because reproductive justice is broader than that, but in just my right to parent my kids and be recognized as a full, you know, responsible, adequate human being as not just a teen parent, but as a teen Black parent and just as a Black parent, single parent at all. 
Lori also told me a year ago about working in the abortion rights movement in Mississippi, about the frustrations that have come with that over the years, feeling dismissed, talked down to, and generally unsupported by a lot of the national activists and big donors. Do you ever get a phone call where they say, Lori, what do you need? Tell us. Tell us what you need. (laughs) And we'll give you the money to do it. No. (laughs) That was a moment I have not forgotten. You can listen back to that whole conversation from last year. There's a link in our show notes. We got back in touch with Lori a few weeks ago. Hey, Lori. Hey, Anna Sale. To hear how the work of funding abortion access has changed. The need is higher, right? It takes more to access abortion care. So people who would have been able to access abortion care without our assistance are now calling us. What's the cost driver there? Why is it costing more money? So the the most common places to get an abortion, if you lived in Mississippi, would be Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, um, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Jackson, Mississippi, right? All of those places were within like five or six hours of most people in Mississippi. Now, the closest place for someone to go get their procedure is Carbondale, Illinois. Well, that's the closest. Yeah. (laughs) So you're talking about day drives just to go for an appointment at seven weeks pregnant, eight weeks pregnant, plus the, the cost of, you know, your $700 appointment or whatever. So someone who might have been able to afford a $700 appointment plus, you know, $100 of gas now can't afford that. Yeah. And I'm imagining if I drive 10 hours, the next day I have an appointment for an abortion, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to feel like getting right back in a car for a 10-hour drive back. But then the question is, can I afford another night overnight? Exactly. And, you know, you're... You're speaking from a state where there wasn't abundant abortion access before Roe was overturned. So do you, do you feel like that has accelerated or does it feel kind of more like now it's just harder and the people who were going to work harder to get to a clinic out of state, uh, it takes more money to do it? No, it feels like for for folks who were already on the edge of not making it to a clinic – that access is just gone now. Can I ask you, do you have a sense of like the percentage of abortion calls that you get that you're able to provide some kind of funding? Probably about half to 65%, Mm -hmm. depending on the month and depending on what's going on, you know, it only takes like a couple of high amount callers because unlike one thing about our fund that's been different than a lot of funds is we don't have a funding cap. Many, some funds have a funding cap, like they only give $50 per caller or they only give, they give a range, right? So like if you're between X number of weeks, you get 50 to a hundred dollars, or if you're further along, you get however many dollars. We've just never been, first of all, we've never been that formal. I don't have time for that. Like, it's just, it's too much like white. And then, secondly, I'm just being honest. (laughs) Wait, I want to like, like, so how do you want, what's the way you want to be? You said too much like white, is that what you said? 
That's what I said. Yes. So I want. So what's the what's the way? Like, what's the culture? What's the way that you want to be when you talk about the available resources and think about how to distribute them? You know, like we have a conversation with you. Like, hey, um, what do you need? Right? We're usually having a conversation with someone before, instead of having this formal conversation of what's your income? What are your resources? We're just conversing like, when is your appointment? What, what does your family look like? And I know you understand this. If you talk to someone, they're gonna tell you what you need to know, right? To me, to then turn around and be like, oh, well, we have this funding range. You can have $500. <laughs> it's kind of strange because if they then can't get to their abortion, what have we done? Right? Like, fiscally on our books, we've then been able to give away $500 to, say, 10 people. But have all of those 10 people been able to go get their abortion? I'd rather one person get to their procedure than we say we gave out to 10 people and only four of them got to their procedure because they weren't able to get the rest of their damn money. That's just one way there's more need than there was a year ago. Inflation has driven up costs for families, so people also need help for just about everything else in Mississippi, the poorest state with the lowest per capita income in the country. Our free pantry is at the highest demand it's ever been at. Ever? Like, ever. Ever. And that's food and cleaning supplies and period supplies. And um, and then we distribute diapers, you know, every week. And, um, and water. Let me just also say water. We always have water out there. We keep out, you know, like cases of bottled water all the time. And we have been for years before it became the, the thing to do because uh, pregnant people and children under five are warned not to drink our water and have been for like nine years. And, and how do you, how does that affect your daily life? Are you, do you drink water out of the tap? Absolutely not. And how long have you not drunk water out of the tap? Over a decade. And that bottled water is something that you pay for out of your pocket? Yeah, we we buy our own water on top of on top of mind you, we have outrageous water bills in Jackson too. Like our water bills, our city water bills are high. So you get to pay for your city water and then pay for additional water so that you can drink and eat, you know, like and cook with it. The issues with Jackson's water infrastructure go back years. Poor maintenance has led to old, leaking pipes, and lead and harmful bacteria have been found in the water. Mississippi's Department of Health has recommended that pregnant people and young children not drink it. Then, last summer, after my first conversation with Lori, flooding shut down a water treatment plant, affecting the city's nearly 150,000 residents, who are more than 80% Black. An official state of emergency lasted until November, and a lot of people still don't trust what's coming out of the tap. Um, our conversation about a year ago uh, has stuck with me. Um, and you you called out the way that you, it was so familiar to know when you were a flash-in-the-pan moment, whether it be on social media or in the national spotlight, the money spigot turned on, it came flowing, and you also knew that it would turn off when something else came and along. Yes. Uh-huh. 
And how, like, what did you notice? What, 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 was the, what was the life cycle of the spigot over the last year? Yeah, I mean, you know, Dobbs happened. And we were like a blip in the Dobbs event. And we weren't a big blip. People were like, oh, well, Mississippi was mentioned in there. So maybe we should think about Mississippi. But um, I feel like a lot, well, I don't feel like I know. A lot of the focus was where are all these people going to be going now that all this abortion access in the South is gone? Let's send our money there. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, clearly the South don't know what to do with themselves. They've made their choices. Let's send our money to these blue states that have their lives together. Uh Uh-huh. And the argument seems to always be coming from people who have a lot of resources. But my thing is like, what about all of the folks who we serve who are stuck here gestating pregnancies that they didn't want to gestate, right? Who, no matter how much money we throw at them, getting 10 hours away is never going to happen for them. Staying pregnant and having the baby is going to be the option for them. So y'all just going to be like, oh, well, too bad for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to, we talked a bit about this a year ago, but given that this year is the 50th anniversary of Roe and going through what you've gone through since Roe was overturned, when you think about the major blind spots of the political movement and the money that funded that political movement, um, to secure abortion rights, like, what do you wish people had paid closer attention to? Access. A right without access is no right. I mean, the very first mistake was just being like, oh, well, we don't have to care about whether or not Medicaid funding exists. <laughs> right? Like, to acquiesce and just go, Poor women don't really need that access. They'll still be able to go to clinics. They'll just have to scrounge up their money. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, girls. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was such a white feminist way of thinking. I mean, abortion funding wouldn't even really be a thing. Let's just be honest. If that first <laughs> if that first initial screw up hadn't happened. Um So whenever I think about, like, what mistakes were made in the abortion rights movement, it starts with that. That was one of the first very visible, very blatant um, silencing and ignoring of the voices of people of color. Because we were the ones saying, listen, this is going to impact communities of color. This is going to impact, you know, marginalized communities who rely on Medicaid So, I mean, like, these things are not, like, without consequence. And folks need to own it. Like, the people who made those decisions are still with us. People with, like, great power in the feminist movement who are still walking this earth, still making decisions, still sitting at tables, still being seen as leaders who do not own those ills, those losses, those consequences. Those, Sorry. Those, <laughs> um, and and what would in your in your work, what would owning that look like? Like, what would that repair look like? I mean, for one, it would look like more investment 
in organizations that are not led by them and their friends. Um, and for those of them that are still hanging around in leadership, maybe they could sit down. You know, sometimes an apology means apologizing and going away. <laughs> you know, like, honestly, sometimes it means stepping back. It means apologizing and passing the mic. It means apologizing and sending over some money, connecting people to donors. What I hear, what I see is lip service. What I see is people saying, oh, I support reproductive justice without investing in reproductive justice beliefs and um, policy positions. It's so surreal. I mean, it really is surreal. Like a lot of the stuff that I was saying about how, you know, like, you know, anti-abortion activists aren't going to stop at Roe. Like if Roe has ever overturned that, like, that's not their end game. And now it's like some of these same folks are coming back to me like I'm some kind of abortion sage. Like, you know, like I'm some kind of like abortion crystal ball. No, you didn't need a crystal ball. All you had to do was look at what they said and did. Like, look at what the policies are that they've been putting in writing and placing into bills. And might I add, is the playbook that they're using to restrict trans health care. I mean, I, I wasn't... I wasn't doing any like, you know, meditating and then coming up with wild predictions here. All I did was like read. Coming up, another read on abortion rights. The framework for Roe was based on viability, when a baby in utero could exist outside the womb. But for two women legal scholars, one who had a stillbirth and the other who had a baby with a fetal abnormality that led to an abortion, that word viability left out a lot. Viability essentially functions as this like on-off switch, right? Where like the fetus or the baby is one thing one day and then a whole other thing the next, right? And that's just not at all how people experience pregnancy, right? We are working on an episode this summer about wedding planning. We've been asking for your stories about the kinds of issues and stresses that planning your big day has churned up. Like for a listener named Juliana from Hamilton, Ontario. I'm currently a resident doctor with six-figure debt, and the idea of spending a down payment on a wedding is quite overwhelming and crushing. My partner, on the other hand, his mom really values these big Italian weddings, inviting pretty much everybody you know. And my partner feels that because it's only a one-time thing we're ever going to do, that it should be a big party. And he's more than willing to use his savings to be able to pay for our wedding. We want to hear from more of you if you are currently planning a wedding and perhaps having more direct conversations than ever about money or how you make decisions like nailing down your expectations about what's a group family decision and what's a decision for the two of you. We'd also like to hear from couples planning a wedding who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. What has this made you notice for the first time? 
And how are you explaining your wedding day choices to each of your families? Record a voice memo and tell us about it and send it to us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. We also want to hear from you if you're a wedding professional to hear about the patterns you've noticed on where there's tension or to hear some of your most memorable moments of helping intended through a tricky emotional decision. If you're a photographer, a baker, a florist, a venue manager, an officiant, a premarital counselor, tell us in a voice memo what you think fiancés of the future might benefit from thinking about or feel comforted to hear. Or if you, like me, were married a while ago, how do you think about the wedding you planned? What was money well spent? What do you think you could have done without? Record a voice memo and send that to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, 
and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. The end of Roe v. Wade has meant that states have been free for the last year to come up with new rules and new language to regulate pregnancies and available health care. There's another podcast at WNYC Studios that is all about the way the Supreme Court and its justices affect our lives. It's called More Perfect, and they have a new season just out this spring. And there's a link to it in our show notes. Please listen. The show is great. They've taken a close look at abortion this season and the idea of fetal viability and what comes next now that that framework is gone. So we want to share some of that reporting with you from More Perfect producer Gabrielle Burbet who tells two very personal stories about what the old legal framework of viability around abortion overlooked. Okay, so let's review for a moment. Last year, the Supreme Court threw out the viability line, and putting aside the chaos we're living in because of that, which is hard to do, some legal scholars who we talk to are weirdly sort of relieved because viability made no sense. They said, now, the creative solutions are endless. And for people who believe in the right to an abortion, there's a pair of lawyers I talked to who've been thinking about this a lot. So we'll start with the tale of two pregnancies from these two legal scholars. Jill Lenz. I am a professor of law at the University of Arkansas School of Law. And Greer Donnelly. I'm a reproductive justice scholar. At the University of Pittsburgh. When Jill and Greer each got pregnant, they were in separate parts of the country. They did not know each other. Both were lawyers, and both in their 30s. After both of them had prepared for their babies to arrive, both Jill and Greer's pregnancies went horribly wrong. For Jill, who lived in Texas at the time, a thing that so many pregnant people fear happened at almost nine months. They couldn't find a heartbeat. The nurses all left the room, and I just let out this scream. Her son was stillborn. For Greer in Pittsburgh, the trouble came earlier in the pregnancy at the 20-week scan. The doctor basically told us that our son had a pretty profound brain anomaly that was preventing brain tissue from forming. Greer is a cancer survivor, so her pregnancy was already considered high risk. The first thing the doctor said was that some people in this situation choose to have an abortion. 
And someone once told me that people faced with this decision can choose life for their child or they can choose peace, but they can't choose both. And what does it mean as a mother when you have to make that choice between those two things, right? When you want desperately to give your kid both of them. But, you know, for me and for many women who came before me, I chose peace. And, you know, in some sense felt like it was the only gift I could give him to not suffer in this world. Um, But it was also a gift that came with profound pain for me. She had an abortion at 22 weeks. If you're comfortable with sharing, like, what did you do after? I came home and, um, you know, I, I was in a really dark place for a while. The loss part of my abortion felt like I didn't know where to go. And the thing that was so strange about it was that I've been pro-choice my whole life, and not just vaguely, right? I was actively involved in causes related to this issue when I was in law school. So I was not expecting to feel the kind of things I felt. Like I was losing, you know, a potential child. A, a Like I felt like I was losing a son, right? Like so many people who've lost a pregnancy, she did not feel this was a clump of cells. She was mourning her baby. I remember someone sent me a book, and I know this person, right? This person is is someone who supports abortion rights. And the book was, um, like, was clearly an anti-abortion book. Like, this is your baby. It's been your baby from the moment. You've, you've carried this baby your whole, its whole life. There was a part of me that was reading this with the emotional experience I had just been through, thinking, oh, yeah, like, this resonates. She couldn't find this kind of comfort in the pro-choice literature she came across. I was feeling this conflict within me. On the one hand, I was someone who had had an abortion at 22 weeks, right? So you can't go through that experience and not, or at least I didn't go through that experience and feel like people shouldn't have access to abortion. On the other hand, I also had never valued fetal life so much. Um, And that was the part where I felt very confused. Over a thousand miles away, Jill, after her stillbirth experience, she was also conflicted. When I walked out of the hospital, someone said to me we would get Caleb's death certificate in the mail. And in my head, I specifically thought, what about his birth certificate? Because I gave, I I literally just gave birth. After Caleb was stillborn, Jill wanted a memorial birth certificate, which is something abortion rights groups have resisted. And when she wrote about the legal recognition of stillborns, her work also got a reaction. So something as simple as the language that I would use when writing about stillbirth especially, that could be threatening to abortion rights. For Greer in Pittsburgh, her experience led her to write a paper which made the case that abortion should be a parental right. But that necessitates, right, that there is a child for whom the parents can make decisions about. And she got a similar reaction. I got a lot of pushback from abortion rights people because they did not like that I was using parental frames to talk about abortion. What Uh, did that pushback look like? It was basically, this really scares me because it's going to create a slippery slope to personhood. 
you know, I think there is every reason to be terrified of personhood. Because once a fetus is a person under the law at any point in pregnancy, it will trump the woman's rights over and over again. So it's not at all that the the fears around this are unfounded. It's that what do we lose by not recognizing something that is very intuitive to so many people who've been pregnant before? Jill and Greer were both mourning and feeling alone. They'd heard about each other in the world of legal scholars, but Greer was afraid to reach out. I see so many pro-life narratives within the stillbirth community and the pregnancy loss community. Like I'm, 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 a, I don't, I'm not comfortable reaching out to Jill because what if she actually thought, well, you know, I lost my kid, you didn't, you, you know, whatever, killed your child. Like I judge you. I'm not gonna. I don't want to. You know, I, I was afraid of being judged. Jill, I'm gonna read this. This is a very Interesting paragraph in an early email you sent Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Jill was the first one to finally reach out. The personhood argument is always difficult, but I really do think the pro-choice side is overreacting. It's just reality that women see their unborn children as children. When the woman wants the baby, she calls it a baby. When she goes in for the ultrasound, the doctor points out the baby's foot, not the fetus's foot. It is a baby to the woman, even though the baby is still unborn. Denying this doesn't preserve abortion rights. It just denies reality. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a, little, it's a little strong, but I don't think it's wrong. <laughs> a friendship was born almost immediately. And... I had always thought about it, but I don't know that I've ever necessarily really told you this, Greer, but it's just, it's amazing to me how similar our situations are. Greer gets it. Greer gets it. Jill and Greer get in touch with each other on the anniversaries of their son's deaths. To them, it's important to honor the babies that they lost. For a lot of people who are not, you know, seeped in one side or the other, you know, the fact that the abortion rights movement doesn't really have a way of thinking about fetal value is alienating because, you know, these are the average people who, you know, feel, you know, feelings of love for their children before they're born and experience loss that leads to profound grief, questioning what that grief is about. You know, she and I really wanted to write a paper that dove into that exact tension. And we hadn't felt like we had seen that anywhere. Because we hadn't seen it anywhere. (laughs) That's Jill Lenz and Greer Donnelly talking to More Perfect's Gabrielle Burbet. Their personal losses led them to a new legal theory. And the More Perfect episode goes on to explore their thinking. It's less about when, legally, a pregnancy becomes a baby with rights, and more like personal injury law, where defining and calculating a loss can be a more personalized process. Here's how Greer Donnelly puts it. The central idea is that the pregnant person gets to decide at what point that pregnancy matters to them. It allows an opportunity for the movement to say... We're going to defend whatever the pregnant person views um, about their pregnancy. Again, you can dive deep into that more perfect series about the origins of the viability line and what might come next. Truly, 
As a non-legal person, I have never felt so invested in a story about tort law. So one year after the Dobbs decision, this kind of high-level rethinking and reevaluating abortion law is ongoing in legal circles, not to mention in political campaigns and state legislatures. Also ongoing is Lori's work on the ground in Mississippi, sometimes relentlessly so. Are there days, Lori, when you're noticing the pantry has this rush of demand and the amount of money you need to disperse to a person in need of an abortion is higher than it was before and you want to sit down and take a break and you have to get a bottle of water? Like, what... What is the cumulative effect on your spirit of all of those things happening at once? You mean the days that I want to just go build a tiny house in the woods and never come back? Yeah, like I have those days all the time. Um, it's it's hard. Like, it's hard. It is it's a choice to do this work. Like, um it's not a choice to fight for our own livelihoods. Like, we live here, right? Like, um, it's funny because recently someone said to me, oh, I thought you did this work because you just love the people. And I just, like, blatantly laughed in their face. <laughs> you don't love the I'm people? Because I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I don't love the people. I mean, I love the people. Obviously, I love, I love my people. But I mean, like, I'm also trying to save my damn self. Like, are you Hmm. you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Like, like, what in the what in the savioritis type shit is that? Like, oh yes, I just woke up one day and I wanted to help the people. I'm doing this for my own family as much as I'm doing it for everybody else. Like, I live here too. (laughs) And there are also times that we close Mm -hmm. for our own, you know, like to re to reboot. And I don't have any shame in that. And it's something I, I try to make sure to tell our um, our team, too, which is, you know, like, we're not responsible for fixing everything that's broken with this system, right? We're here as a stopgap, right? We don't hold ourselves responsible for not being able to fund every abortion when we shouldn't be the ones having to fund abortions to begin with. We're here to do what we can, how we can, when we can, and not cause harm. And as long as we're doing that, then we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I'm not going to beat myself up. At least I'm going to try not to. That's Lori Bertram Roberts of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund in Jackson, Mississippi. Just last week, the federal government announced an initial $115 million to begin rebuilding the water system in Jackson. That's part of $600 million Congress earmarked for repairs in the city last year. But it will take years to fix. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. 
The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy, the Reverend John Delore, and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. More Perfect is also a production of WNYC Studios. The excerpt you heard was produced by Gabrielle Berbet and Alyssa Eads. It was edited by Jenny Lawton, Whitney Jones, Emily Siner, and Julia Longoria, and fact-checked by Naomi Sharp. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, you can find More Perfect in your podcast app and subscribe. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. And the show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Sarah McIntosh in Lakewood, Ohio, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Sarah and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Thank you.